0: Good morning. How are we doing? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here today, and... uh, Uh, It's just a good time to be in God's house. So my prayer is that no matter what you've been going through, whether you're coming off the most incredible week you've ever had, or maybe it's the toughest week you ever had, uh, we all come here because something inside of us has drawn us to want to know more about God. And we may not even know that He exists. You may have no idea why you're even here. Uh, Somebody may have told you, hey, we're going out to lunch, and they brought you here, and you're stuck for a while. That's totally cool. The reality, though, is, is that all of us get to a point in our lives where we realize that things just aren't going exactly the way we thought they would if we were in control of our lives. And and all of us got to a point, many of us, where we just knew something was missing, we could feel it. And so we come to a place like this and we try to learn about Jesus and we think if we can just learn enough information that somehow we'll just it'll click. But that's not what happens. What happens is we begin to learn about Jesus and as we're learning, as we're being around people, all of a sudden we realize that we're falling in love. Amen and that it's real, and that He's here, and nothing's by accident. So, we're all in this room together, honestly, because God has ordained it. And so, my hope is that something we say today, something that you hear today will make you in some way want to take a step closer to God, How whatever step that is. And that's why we come here every week. We're in the seventh week of a series. It's a series about Gnosticism. It's a series about the... Attack that was going on in the early church and that has continued for 2,000 years and is going on in our church as well. Gnosticism was this false teaching that basically said, look, Jesus wasn't even necessary. All you got to have is special knowledge. And if you have the special knowledge, you'll be saved. And, and so we've been talking about that, and we'll go into it again as we go. But if you've missed the series so far, I encourage you to go back online. Uh, you may not know this, but if you go to our website and you click on sermons and you look at previous sermons, uh, every sermon we've done essentially is there. Um, you can sleep to every one of them, a different one each night. <laughs> Um, But so are the notes, so if you want to just read, if you're better at reading or you want to take notes, you can go back and look at them again. So that's my encouragement to you. Now this may surprise you, but when I was a child, I was unusually big. (laughs) Hard to believe. I wasn't big like big, I was big like really tall and really thin. And my problem was, because I was so tall, I tended to hang out with kids that were older than me. But they were also stronger. Do you remember what it meant to cry uncle? Do you remember that? As a kid, you know, they chase you around, they get you pinned down on the ground, and then they say, say it, say it, and you're like, what? Say it, say uncle. And then so what happens is you, you realize that some bigger kid is asking you to surrender, and after a while he's got his knees on your shoulders and you can't do a darn thing, and so you finally just go, okay, okay, uncle. And then if you were lucky, after about 30 minutes, they let you up. <laughs> But as soon as they let me up, you know what I did? I'd run around going, ha, I got up. And I'd run around taunting them and teasing them, laughing at them for trusting me to get up. And then they'd have to chase me again. But invariably that didn't take a whole lot of time. And before long, I was pinned down the second time. And the second time was much worse than the first time. When you finally say surrender the second time, you really mean it. Because, like, if you get up a third time, it's not just going to be uncle. You're going to be getting beat up. So the second surrender always took longer than the first. No matter how much I cried uncle, they kept me pinned until they were sure and I was sure that I had truly surrendered. It happens in fishing, too. I've been known to catch a few fish in my day. (laughs) But when a fish is hooked, it takes off as hard as it can going all over the place. And it fights and it twists and it struggles and it tries to throw the hook, tries to cut the line, tries to dive under rocks, it does anything it can do to keep from coming towards the boat. And then there's a moment that you can actually feel where the fish just kind of goes, okay, fine." And the fight's over, and the fish is just like, fine, I'm exhausted, I can't do anything. And the struggle seems to end, and then you get the fish near the boat. And the fish is like, wait a minute, this is not what I bargained for. And the fish takes off again on what they call a second run. And that second run is often stronger than the first run. And so what happens is, we don't understand sometimes that our walk with Jesus is just like that. We want to maintain our independence. We want to keep our opinions. We want to keep our sins. We want to keep our version of what's true. But then God in some way has us kind of hooked. And He draws us towards Him and we, we surrender. We decide to stop fighting Him. And in faith we accept Him as our Savior. It's how it works. We, we get to a point where we're just so tired and so exhausted trying to do life our way. And nothing's working, and we've tried everything, but the one thing we haven't tried is just surrendering to Jesus. And so many of us have been in that moment where there, there's nowhere to go except to Christ. In fact, the disciples said that at one point. They said, where are we going to go? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And so we all get to that point, and Jesus begins drawing us in. And that's where, for many of us, our struggle starts. You see, as we get closer to Jesus, we begin to learn what it means to truly follow Him. And here's the reality. Most of us want a Savior. We don't want a Lord. We want a Savior. We don't want a Lord. You see, as we get close to Jesus, we begin to learn what it means to truly follow Him. We begin to learn that it takes a second surrender. And like the fish that finds new energy for a second fight, we do the same. So we accept Christ in faith as our Savior. And He says, okay, now I'm going to be Lord of your life. And we oh, no, 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 no. No. I'm taking a second run. You see, because I'm all into the Savior thing, I'm not into the Lord of my life thing. Because if you're Lord of my life, that means your truth is true and not mine. See, the first fight makes Him our Savior, the second fight makes Him our Lord. And for many people, the second fight lasts a lifetime. But for some, there's a second surrender. A moment in your life where you know deep down that you're truly His. And it's that second surrender that Peter is going to explore in the scriptures today. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Seven weeks in the series, we're still in the first chapter, just saying. <laughs> all right, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Last week, we learned about the morning star that rises in our hearts. And Peter wants us to know look, first of all, we've talked about who I am. We've talked about where you are in your faith. We've talked about that morning star rising up in you. We've talked about remembering who you are, remembering everything. But there's one thing I got to make sure you know, you see, because false teachers are coming. And they're going to try to convince you that what you know is true is not true. So here's what you need to know. Scripture did not come from man. It's critical. Peter is on his deathbed essentially. He's about to be killed. He's like, you got to know this. Peter's transitioning here from who he is to the origin of the truth that he's teaching. He's validated his experience. He told him, I was on the mountaintop. I saw Jesus transfigured. I know He's coming back. That's my experience. But let me tell you something that trumps all of that. You see, I have His truth and His Word. And even though I'm an eyewitness testimony of what Jesus did, it doesn't trump the origin and truth of Scripture. See, this is a point that's lost on many people in our day to day. The origination of Scripture. Peter's concerned about false teachers, Gnostics who are going to come into the church and teach things that are contrary to what God says is true. And they're everywhere in our society and in our churches today. But this is what Peter wants to stir up in your heart and in my heart. People are going to come into the church and they're going to teach that they have new information a new revelation, a new word from God, a new way of looking at Scripture, a new way of interpreting what the Scriptures really were meant to say. And these new interpretations are going to contradict the truth that's already in Scripture. These lies, they claim, are special knowledge for those that are enlightened, shown to them and revealed through them. It happens all the time in churches today. Peter's concern, first of all, if you think Scripture came from me, from a human source, then you might incorrectly think that the argument is between the Gnostics and Peter on what's true. Peter's like, no, that's not what this is about. And this is so relevant in our churches today that we become numb to it. Our, our churches are full of people who have opinions about what truth should be, and what God should have said in Scripture. They teach their opinions as gospel instead of God's truth as gospel. They look at the Scriptures and they say, I know that's what it says, but but let me tell you what I think it really means. Peter wants to make sure that we understand that we cannot give our opinion as if it carries the same weight as Scripture. Because when we do it, we're not challenging Peter we're challenging God. As soon as we look at Scripture and try to make it say something that it doesn't say, our problem is with God because those are His words, not Peter's. That's what Peter wants people to understand. They're not coming here to argue about me. They're coming here to challenge the very foundational truth that God Himself has given to man. Peter told them and he told us, we have the prophetic word, we have the Old Testament, we have all the testimonies, the truth spoken through the prophets, fulfilled in Jesus. We have that word and that truth. Not just the Old Testament prophets, the entire Old Testament. The fully revealed truth of God from God himself. I say all the time, this book is a collection of historical holy documents written by God. The prophetic word is more complete, more permanent, more authoritative, more reliable than the teaching of any man you'll ever see. Even the people who had firsthand knowledge. You see, Peter has just said, Look, I was on the mountain. I saw Jesus transfigured. I walked on water. I did all these things. None of that matters more than what the scriptures say because that's from God Himself. Peter wants to make sure that we are crystal clear before false teachers show up that we fully understand that Scripture did not come from man. And he uses the image of sailing, which all of the people in the first century understood. Every word. That's why they're called holy scriptures. Peter says, well, they were written by a man in that man put pen to paper... But they were the scribes of God Himself. He spoke and they wrote. They were carried along by the Spirit, just like a ship is propelled by the wind. The Holy Spirit guided, directed, inspired each and every word, and they were carried along as they wrote, as if something bigger and greater was happening through them. Often writing words that made no sense to them prophetic words of time to come, times and words that made no sense, but they wrote them down anyway. Why? Why would you write down words that make no sense to you? Because they knew they weren't their words or their ideas about God. The Holy Spirit was showing them that this is God's truth, God's revelation of Himself. Not everything we want to know, but everything we need to know about God. And in a few chapters, even Peter says we're going to surrender to it even if we don't understand it, speaking to the writings of Paul. I love Peter because he always says what's on his mind. He, he's going to tell you. You know those letters Paul wrote? Man, they're hard to understand. I love that because they are. Second Peter 3.16 As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, Peter says which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Instead of surrendering to God's truth, the ignorant twist them and put their opinion on them and spin them to their own destruction." Peter in his first book told us that the prophets understood they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is important to know. They wrote things they did not understand. They described things that had not yet happened but they knew they were writing for future people. In other words, it wasn't like they were just sitting at a desk writing a letter going, okay, well this is cool, I'm going to write this, oh that doesn't make any sense, I'm going to keep that. They just, that's not what they did. They knew fully well that God was speaking through them and they were scribes of God Himself. First Peter 1 Peter 1-2. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. What Peter's saying is, look, it was revealed to them. The Holy Spirit revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. That the writings were for people yet to come. They knew, they knew that they were what they were writing made no sense to them, but it made sense to God. John clearly wrote of end times events that he did not fully understand. But as a faithful follower of Christ in the book of Revelation he wrote exactly what he was directed to write and tried his best to describe the vision that God was giving to him. In fact at one point God says don't write this down. He saw things that God said I don't want you writing that down. Not yet. Daniel didn't understand what he was writing often. Daniel 12, 8, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I'm seeing things that are just crazy. I don't understand. Why am I writing this down? And God says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. They knew they were writing for future people. They knew that some of what they were writing was for you and me. That when they said the entire world would see something at one time, They couldn't imagine how that could happen, but God said it was going to happen, and now we read it 2,000 years later and go, yeah, of course. Everybody, all at once, we can see it. Why is this so important? Because if the origin of Scripture is man, then they would never have written down things that made no sense to them. they had ideas, they had their own opinions, they had their own thoughts. But those never became part of God's truth. Every word of this book is straight from God Himself. It is His truth revealed through man to men. People often ask me to give my opinion on things. Everything from tithing, to abortion, to what a sin is, to heaven, to hell, creation, evolution, sexual orientation, war, gender roles, you name it, they ask, what do you think about blah, blah, blah. And I always answer the same. And this is critical for believers to not only understand but to embrace and to act upon it. I tell them I don't have an opinion on those things. When I surrendered to Jesus, I surrendered in faith. The second surrender was harder. After we surrender to faith in Jesus for our salvation, true believers must at some point surrender to His truth. And that's a very hard thing to do. We are so full of our own knowledge, our own opinions, our own view, particularly in the West. We want our salvation that Jesus offers, but we want to keep our version of what truth should be. And that's an option that Jesus never gave to His followers. He never said, come follow me and then do what you want to do. Come follow me and then take my word and spin it to where you're comfortable with it. He said, no, when you follow me, you're going to hold this word up as true and you're going to surrender to it just like you did to me. You see, because I am the word. You will surrender to it. You won't stand over it trying to make it say what you want it to say or what's politically correct or what's culturally acceptable. You surrender to me as your Savior and then you're going to surrender to me as the Lord of your life. And when you make Jesus Lord of your life, you no longer have opinions on matters where He has already spoken truth. His truth is true. It existed long before you were even here to have an opinion about it. And it will be true long after you and I are ever here. It will continue into future generations. The truth is true. And after I gave my life to Jesus Christ in faith, it took me years before I actually allowed Him to be Lord of my life. I gave up my opinions and I surrendered to His truth. God has clearly spoken, and as a slave of Jesus Christ, the truth that guides my life is not of human origin, it's from God. And the things that everybody else runs around trying to solve has already been spoken and settled. And I tell them, look, my opinions don't matter. I made Jesus Christ my Lord, and He has spoken. That's what I tell them, God's truth. But then they say, yeah, but what do you think? And I tell them I don't, I just obey. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago about the impact that a documentary of Billy Graham had on me recently. At the beginning of his ministry, Billy Graham was confident that the Bible was the true Word of God. But then he read some authors who did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. And his good friend, closest friend in life, Chuck Templeton, was telling him that not everything in the Bible is true. So this raised questions for Billy Graham as a young evangelist, questions he needed answers to. So what did he do? Well both he and his friend Chuck Templeton were scheduled to speak at a conference in the mountains east of Los Angeles, and they talked between meetings. And Chuck told Billy, Billy you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. Your language is out of date, you're going to have to learn new jargon if you're going to be successful in ministry." Chuck's comments were not only painful, they shook Billy Graham's confidence in the Bible. So one evening he went to his room to study God's Word and he saw how Jesus taught in the Old Testament that it was completely true. He studied how Jesus told the stories of Noah and Jonah, and they actually happened as described in the Old Testament. He read all the verses he could find about the Bible's truth and authority. He saw again that the Bible did claim to be the perfectly true Word of God. But he could not tell that the issue was settled in his heart. So he left his room and he walked into a forest. It was a warm August night. It was late. The moon was out. He came to a tree stump and he knelt down. With his Bible on the stump in front of him and he prayed something like this. Oh God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. I can't answer some of the questions Chuck and others are asking me. But even though he was praying sincerely, he could tell that something was unresolved. And then he said the Holy Spirit finally told him to pray this, Father, I'm going to accept your word as true by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I'll believe this to be your inspired word, no matter what my mind says about it. This is what Billy Graham said in his book, Just As I Am. When I got up from my knees at Forest Home that August night, my eyes stung with tears. I sensed the presence and power of God as if I would not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. This is a spiritual battle that every believer has to wrestle with. Am I going to believe this book is the true Word of God? Every word, every story, everything it says, it's true. My opinions don't matter. Peter is teaching and Billy Graham experienced what I believe is the second great surrender of every believer's life. Our first surrender is to trust Jesus to become our Savior. We accept in faith what Jesus did on the cross. We die to ourselves. We die to our plans to save ourselves, our plans to excuse our sins, to hope that God is on a curve, all those kind of things. We give those up. And we trust what Jesus did on the cross for our salvation. And the Bible says it's all it takes. Faith in Jesus. That He took your place on the cross for your sins. That He took the punishment. That you know that He died and resurrected. That you confess your sins. That you repent of your sins. And you trust Jesus to save you in faith. In faith alone. You don't earn your way into God's favor. You're already there. He just wants you to surrender to what Jesus has done. So our faith in Jesus for our salvation is our first great surrender. But there's a second surrender that sadly many believers never experience. They trust Jesus as their Savior but not as their Lord. They fill up pews every week. They they serve in Bible study, they serve in church, they tithe, they look like they understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, but they've never embraced the Bible as God's truth. They get close to Jesus after their baptism, but as soon as they realize what's really required to follow Him, they make a second run away. And many of them stay there their entire walk while they're on earth. Saved, but not being transformed. Saved, but not free. That process that we talked about a few weeks ago, the spiritual maturity, the seven steps... Is really a growth process of dying to your opinions, your ideas, your thoughts, and your hopes of how things should have been. And instead, embracing the truth of how God says they truly are. You see, we want Jesus as our Savior, we don't want Him as our Lord. Because what He says as our Lord trumps anything we think. Once He is truly Lord of your life, you no longer have opinions in areas where He's spoken. My struggle with the authority and truth of Scripture was a battle for many years in my walk with Christ. I couldn't accept the idea that after trusting Jesus with my salvation, that I was to just turn off my mind. Ignore my very enlightened and honestly impressive opinions. And I'm just supposed to believe something because God says it's true. Did you hear what I just said? (laughs) Why should I believe something just because God says it's true? Pause for a moment and let the stupidity of that statement just sink in. On the day that I finally surrendered and allow Jesus to be Lord of my life, and allow His truth to be the undisputed truth of my life, it was like a huge weight was lifted off. It was incredible. I understood the verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But if I put my opinions on that truth, that's not a truth that sets me free. Like Billy, not all of my questions were answered. But many of my questions no longer needed answers anymore. To the Western mind, that seems ridiculous. You came to Jesus and turned off your mind. You became a non-thinking zombie, robotically saying, yes, Master. Well, actually, yes. In areas of life where God has clearly spoken, I accept His truth without thinking, and I just move on. Sounds crazy, right? sure is freeing. I don't have to waste time to make excuses for God. I don't have to try to convince people. I don't have to waste time trying to add my spin to topics like creation and abortion and tithing and the study of Scripture and praying and homosexuality and gender identity sins and the Sabbath and hundreds of other things. I don't get into arguments. I state God's truth in love and I move on. I don't care what people think about me. I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm trying to be biblically correct. Jesus is my Lord, and I actually know it. He said, If you make me Lord of your life, the world's going to hate you. They'll turn against you. And he goes on to say that it's okay because they did the same thing to him. So one day, I finally decided to surrender to God's truth and let Jesus' words become the only truth that I knew. (coughs) Did Jonah stay in the large fish for three days? Jesus said he did. Did all the animals really fit on the ark? And was there a flood that clobbered the earth? Jesus said there was. Did God really rain down hail and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? Jesus said so. Not only did Jesus say these things, He lived them as an example to us. Look at how Jesus responds when Satan entices Him to give His opinion instead of acting on the desires and truth of God's Word. And Jesus answered him, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. And He answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Three examples to given us and each time Jesus responds with, you don't need my opinion, it's been spoken in Scripture. When Satan asked Jesus to weigh in and give his opinion on what God has said, Jesus began each answer the same. It is written. If Christians around the globe could just embrace this lesson from Jesus, even Satan knows Scripture can't be argued. Every time Jesus spoke God's truth in Scripture, Satan was silenced. Look back at the sin in your life. Most likely it started the moment you said to yourself, I know what's written, but here's what I think about it. I know what's written, but if you do anything past I know what's written, you're headed for trouble. Unless the next word is, yes Lord. That's actually two words, yes Lord. (laughs) We're given three examples. And this part is just my opinion. I think Jesus quoted almost the entire Bible to Satan that day. Because Satan through the Bible tells us every temptation at Jesus that was known. And I think every time Jesus responded with, it is written. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now compare Jesus' response to to Satan to that of man. Satan always tries to entice us to take what we know is true and put our opinion on it. Spin it. You know what's true, but what about this? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garment, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. First problem. And it's a problem with most Christians. Eve doesn't know what God said. She doesn't know the truth. She attempts to quote God, but what she quotes has no power over Satan. Why? because she misquoted the truth. She says that even if she touches it she'll die, and God did not say that. She's already interpreted that Scripture in her way and put on it what she wants it to say. The problem is when she does that it no longer has power because it's not God's Word, it's her Word. She's had her interpretation to it. It may have been with good intention, but her words took away the power of God's words. And that was the moment that Satan knew he had her. The moment he knows he has us. If she had quoted God's truth exactly, there would have been power in those words, and he would have left just like he did with Jesus. If we change God's truth by adding anything to it, it's no longer God's truth. It's God's truth with our take on it. And once we change Scripture to meet what we want, it has no power. God's truth is the sword. It is the only weapon that we're given to fight spiritual battles. Yet most of us go into life not holding God's sword. We're holding our own version of the sword and we wonder why it has no power. We hear that the truth will set us free but we don't feel free because the truth is ours, not God's. Our opinions, our thoughts, our beliefs have no power in the spiritual realm only God's truth. Satan destroys people who try to go into spiritual battles with their sword instead of God's. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And once Eve steps out from under the protective umbrella of God's truth, she's about to get drenched in deception. Watch as she moves from God's truth to her opinion. So, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate of it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In that moment, Satan turns from our encourager to our accuser. What did you do? You ate, God told you, you're going to die. How stupid are you? And that's what Satan does. He entices you to make a bad decision. He entices you to replace God's truth with your own. And as soon as you do it, he's right there to start accusing you. You are so stupid. Why would you do such a thing? Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Every time a believer in Jesus opens their mouth on tempting topics where God has already spoken, Satan knows he has us too. So I gave up my opinion on such matters. I still have opinions, strong ones actually, but they're in no way in the proper, but they are in the proper place in my life. I keep them to myself because I now understand what they are ramblings of a fool who knows nothing about the things of God. My opinion about things of God that he said are true are just foolish interpretations by a minuscule human who's on a spinning planet with a little bitty brain compared to God's enormous power. My opinion means nothing. Creation, it is written. Abortion, it is written. Assisted suicide, it's written. Tithing, it's written. Paying taxes, it's written. Obeying the Sabbath, it is written. Homosexuality, it is written. Salvation, it is written. Sin, it is written. Heaven, it is written. Hell, it's written. Second coming, it is written. Eternity, it is written. The very words of Jesus still echo from the desert in history to our hearts today. It is written. That's our answer. Period. Yes. Full stop. There is absolutely nothing left to say on this topic. God has spoken. It is written. And He is not only the Savior of my life, He is the Lord of my life. Peter taught us to stir up our memory, to remind us, to reflect and to remember. Jesus told us, when you come together, there's something I want you to do to remember me. I want you to share in communion. Communion is where we stop and think about what we truly believe and why we believe it. It's a moment where we stop and reflect, where we examine ourselves, Paul says, where we surrender once again, fully and completely to Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. Only those who've trusted Jesus share in communion. Only those who made him Lord of your life by surrendering to his truth should take communion. I want you to reflect on that today before we do communion. Have you surrendered to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? Or are you still going through your walk trying to have Jesus in your truth? You see, because here's what they don't say from church very often. If you're going through your life with Jesus... Still trying to hold on to your truth instead of surrendering to His? The Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. It's a sin that has to be confessed. If there's a topic where God has spoken truth and you've refused to accept it, submit to it, and allow His truth to be your Lord, you're in sin. And the scriptures say until you confess that sin, don't take communion. If there's something between you and God, resolve it. So as we take communion here in a minute, I want you to really think about this. I want you to make sure your heart's ready. I want to make sure your heart's right. If you're still putting your spin on God's truth, we love you and we hope that you allow Jesus' truth to become the Lord of your life. But right now, it'd be better for you to spend time talking to God about why you can't release your truth to his and let him walk you through that, than to take communion from a heart that's not truly his. So, if you're not a believer in Christ, for the next few minutes as we take communion, I'm going to ask you to sit and reflect and think about what we've been doing. There's a lot to think about. (coughs) Remember, it's not truth that sets you free. It's God's truth that sets you free. Let's pray. God as we come to the table the night before you were crucified you got the disciples together and you took the bread and you broke the bread and you said this is my body do this in remembrance of me and then you took the cup and you passed the cup from person to person you said when you drink from this cup do this in remembrance of me so God we remember you this morning We remember the price you paid on the cross. We remember that you offered to be our Savior, that we come to you in faith for our salvation. But you've also surrendered and asked us to surrender to allow you to be Lord of our lives. Lord, when you were here, you surrendered to the Father. You did only what he wanted you to do. You said only what he said to do. You healed only the people that he told you to heal. And every day, it seems, you said, I'm here to do the Father's work. So, Jesus, we're here to do your work. We do what you say. Your truth is our truth. Help us, God, to surrender once again. Move our hearts as we take communion. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.